So let's uh, start here in Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to pick up from verse 58. So this is picking up after Stephen has, has uh, preached his sermon or his speech, whatever you want to call it, throughout all of Acts 7. The crowd reacts with rage, and Stephen is seeing this, and then God in his goodness and his grace opens the heavens, and Stephen is able to see the risen Christ standing looking at him, watching, and Stephen declares that, and that puts the crowd over the edge. Now, wait, you're declaring Jesus, this man that we killed, this false prophet at the glory of God at the right hand, and that puts them over the edge, and they respond now with murder. And the first martyr of the church is introduced, right? So verse 58, chapter 7, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. God, we just pray this morning that you would take your word You'd speak to us through it. That your spirit would take these words inspired so many years ago, written down by Luke. God would take these ancient words that they'd fall on our ears and in our hearts and impress on us whatever it is that we need this morning, God. Some sit here in need of encouragement. They need to be reminded this morning, God, of your goodness, your faithfulness. They need to have that confidence in you restored like Stephen had as he stood there being killed. They need to have confidence restored in the power of your spirit and the power of your word. God, others sit here today, God, with maybe the need for a a word of correction or rebuke. Maybe it's because this past week they've been involved in just downright blatant sin and rebellion. Maybe it's just been indifference. Whatever it is, God, wherever we find ourselves this morning as a church, God, you would take your word and do what you need to do to change us, to sanctify us. Not so that we can leave here with more knowledge, though that's good, we need the knowledge of your word, but we'd also leave here transformed and changed and understanding what we need to do as we enter the work week and the schoolwork and whatever it is we have this week, God, ahead of us, to bring glory to you, to better serve you, to fulfill our purpose. God, we pray this again for the glory of Jesus Christ, the sake of the kingdom. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've just been struck this week as I thought about Stephen. Man, I just I want that spirit in me, that confidence, that boldness. Uh, we came across this. This is a, a series that John Piper wrote um, called The Swans Are Not Silent, several books that highlight different people in Christian uh, history, Augustine, Calvin, and on to some even newer missionaries and things like that. And a guy he uh, writes about in this chapter is John Patton. John Patton was a missionary in uh, the Pacific area, Pacific, uh, island chain called New Hebrides. Um, I think it has a different name now. I can't remember off the top of my head what it is. But he had been there several years and ministered. Um, and, and, and actually, it was, it was bad. It was terrible. Lost his wife, lost his baby girl, um, and saw no success. God continued to move and work and moved him to another island later on and saw a great harvest of souls for the gospel. John Patton put up with a lot, sacrificed a lot, but he had the spirit of Stephen, the spirit of these early believers in Acts 8 who went wherever God sent them, preaching the word. And I love this. This is when he was first considering going, and someone from his church, a certain Mr. Dixon, he uses the terminology, exploded in opposition to John Patton leaving. He says, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals having in his mind uh, some missionaries who had died not too long ago, um, who had been killed by cannibals. And this is how John Patton responded. This is the spirit of Stephen. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. In other words, you're old, right? And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. He's like, whatever, dude. (laughs) You're going to die, I'm going to die, and whatever eats us after we die, who cares? (laughs) If my life can be of service to Jesus Christ, and that's what it cost. So be it. There will be a resurrection, and I'm fine with how that all turns out. Right? That's the spirit of Stephen, the spirit of boldness, a spirit that calls us to proclaim. So again, right, we got to this point. Stephen preached in Acts 7. They respond in rage, and now the crowd responds with murder. We kind of passed over this quickly last week, but again, I just want us to understand what it is our brother Stephen faced here. Stoning. This is one of the most gruesome ways to die. Long, tedious. Um, I didn't have a rock last week, but I got one this week. Um, I'm not going to throw this at anybody. Um, They would have used all different kinds of sizes of rocks. Would have kind of been standing above Stephen a little bit. It would have been down, maybe not unlike a height like this, and just pummeling him with rocks. It was in that context where everything he says happens from here on out as those rocks are pummeling his body. Like I said, I'm not going to throw this. I'm not going to create any work for the brew crew this week. By, but, right, just over and over and over again. Maybe someone grabbed a couple little ones on occasion to throw, you know, get a little more velocity behind this one. Probably grabbed some bigger ones. That's how stoning went. 
But this is what they did to Stephen, the hatred, the animosity, the violence in all of this. I want you to be mindful of that because the words he speaks as that is unfolding and being directed at him is just astounding. Before we get into that, I talked about this being an important hinge point, and we do need to talk about Saul of Tarsus because he's introduced here. This is very intentional on Luke's part. They laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Right? We talked about this. They, got, they got, took off their coats so they could throw things better. Saul standing there probably indicates that in some way, shape, or form, he's the leader of this opposition towards Stephen. It is very interesting when you think about where Saul is from. Saul is from Tarsus. Tarsus is in a region called Cilicia. We've been introduced to Cilicia earlier in this account. This all started with a synagogue of freedmen who were from, among other places, Cilicia. It's mentioned. There's a very good chance that Saul was probably the guy who instigated this whole thing as a member of that synagogue. He's in charge here. He's approving of this execution. This is a significant introduction because Saul becomes the hero of the second half of the book of Acts. So as we'll see, right, the martyrdom of Stephen, the subsequent persecution of the church becomes a launching point. The attempts, this event, Saul's actions, right, the attempt to silence the gospel is not the end of anything. It's actually the beginning. And this man, Saul, who's the ringleader of this whole thing, becomes one of the most prominent voices for the gospel in all of redemptive history. God is not at the mercy of those who oppose his work, period. He does his thing regardless of what any human institution, government does. We need to be encouraged by that this morning, church. We've talked about this. This is a theme in Acts. I feel like it's a broken record a little bit, but it's just a theme that keeps coming up. And it's such a good word for us because it is hard. It does feel like we're shouting into the wind sometimes. But we're not defeated. The gospel doesn't bow. The flame of the gospel is not extinguished by the winds of culture. It continues to blow, and it continues to blow more steady and stronger because of what it is. We need to be encouraged by that. So keep that introduction of Saul of Tarsus in your mind. It becomes significant. Back to Stephen for a minute. Started in on this last week, right? He responds to the stoning with calm assurance and words of grace and forgiveness. As they were stoning him, that's what the verse says, right? As they were stoning him, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sounds familiar, right? It's the words of Jesus on the cross, who was quoting Psalm 31. But this is the exact same thing Jesus said as, as they were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, we talked about this last week. Stephen just modeled his Savior in every way, even in his death. What I love here is there's a little subtle change in the nuance of Stephen's cry versus Jesus's, right? Stephen says, Jesus, receive my spirit. It's a high Christology here in Acts. Jesus is his mediator. He's calling out to his mediator. He's calling out to his Savior. Confident in Jesus, 
We sing this, right? In the, in the song we sing, in Christ alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Why? Because the power of Jesus in me. You think about this. Stephen understood this. The worst that anyone can ever do to us as believers is send us to Jesus. That's the worst they can do. Send us to Jesus. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the consolation prize? <laughs> really? No. Right? That's the worst they can do. Jesus had said this. Stephen understood Matthew. All right, Matthew 10. Jesus had said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Complete confidence in Jesus. To sustain him, to welcome him home, to give him what he needs as he faces persecution. Satan wants to erode our confidence in Jesus. Satan wants to erode our confidence in his truth and in his faithfulness and in his strength. When you're trying to get a, a personal record, with weights, one of the most crucial aspects of getting a personal record is complete confidence in your spotter. Right? You're not going to attempt to lift something new and challenging if you don't have confidence in the guy standing over you to pull that bar off your chest if it comes crashing down on you. You have to have confidence. Confidence that he's going to rescue you if you get in trouble. Confidence that he's not going to touch the bar when you don't want him to. That's the worst. You know you're struggling a little bit, but you're going to, and they touch the bar and it's over. You have confidence. This guy's going to, Jesus is the ultimate spotter. And if my complete and total trust and confidence is in him, I will attempt things that in my own, I don't have any business attempting. But I'm doing it because confident. That's what Stephen was. That's why Stephen can look up as they're hurling rocks at him, pummeling his body. Jesus, take my spirit. Complete confidence in who you are. You have that confidence. Go engage your world this week in complete confidence of who your Savior is and the power of his word and that he's got this entire situation under his control. Right? The other thing Stephen says is don't hold this sin against them. You see the heart of Stephen here. Stephen understands the words of Jesus in Luke 6. Bless those who persecute you. Stephen follows the example of his Savior. Father, forgive them. Right? Stephen cares about these people. Stephen loves these people dearly. He shoots straight with them, right? His, his speech in Acts 7 is, is, he doesn't hold back. It's pretty scathing. And yet, he does it out of love. Communicating truth boldly does not mean he doesn't love them. Right? When Jake and I went over to Calvary with Jordan, uh, this guy who was sleeping out here, who was um, just struggling with drug addiction, and I, one of the things that struck me that she said to him, I loved what she did. She, she laid out, basically, Jordan, this is what you need to do. This is the best case scenario. You need to do this, 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 and this. And here, and here are the options. And here are the things we want to equip you with and give you to help you succeed. But then she said this. And it struck me. She said, but if you don't, and you choose to just go downtown and hang out with the homeless people for a while and just process all that, she goes, we will still 
come down and love you where you are at. I love that. Spoke truth to him. You should do this, this, and this. But then didn't say, and if you do that, we'll continue to love you. I said, we're going to continue to love you, but this is what's best. See, the great lie of our culture is that if I disagree with you, if I speak truth to you, if I say that something is wrong, the great lie of our culture is that I hate you. Well, that's hate. No, it's not. It's love. It's care. It's concern. The two aren't mutually exclusive. Communicate truth, but just make sure you do it in a way that that person knows you love them and care about them. When we were at Zach's robotics competition a few weeks back, they were playing music in between the, the different matches, and this song came on uh, by an artist named Elenium. And I was kind of like loosely listening to the music, and then this one song kind of caught my, my attention, and it was because the, the lyrics of the chorus were awful. Totally anti-God. I'm my own God. That type of thing. And it made me curious, though, so I looked up the song. And I was struck by the words, the first line of the song, talking to Christians, you can go ahead and judge me so that you can, just so you can say you're right. You can try to rise above me. And I thought, you know, sometimes we can come across that way. I don't really love you. I'm just trying to win an argument. I just want to, I want, I want to be proved right. That is not how we are to communicate the gospel. I love apologetics. I think they're important. I think we need to be well-versed in them and able to use them. But I, I cringe sometimes watching sometimes these debates and things like that when I'm like, the object's not to make the person look stupid and shame them. I, I want to speak truth to them because I want them to go to the logical conclusions of what they believe, but I don't want to do it to make a fool out. So I look like I have all the answers and look great and they look stupid. But sometimes I think we can come across that way. Stephen balances so well. Stephen spoke truth, but he loved deeply. You don't love, I mean, you don't say what he said as they're pitching rocks at him if you don't love deeply. So speak the truth boldly and unashamedly, but do it in such a way that the people, your classmates, your neighbors, uh, your coworkers, whatever, go, man, I don't disagree with you. And what you're saying is really kind of annoying me, but you know what I can't question? You care about me. I know you love me. I know you care about me. Stephen is a great model of that, right? So he responds with calm assurance and confidence, words of grace, and then he's martyred. He meets Jesus. We have the first martyr, the Christian church. I love this, though, right? It says he falls asleep. What a crazy way to describe such a violent death. He falls asleep. What does falling asleep communicate? What does it imply? Waking up again, right? Temporary. I tuck my kids in at night. I don't walk in and go, oh, no, they're sleeping. It's the worst. No, it's actually just the opposite, right? <laughs> it's the best. No. Um, <laughs> not anymore. Um, no, right? But when they're little, it's not like, you know, I'm not like, Kathy, they're sleeping. Oh, no. It's the worst. Like, No. What I say to them before they go to sleep at night, I'll see you in the morning. Sleep. For the believer, the world can only inflict so much on us. But when we die in Jesus, when we sacrifice for Jesus, we're just falling asleep. Preparing to awaken to something better, greater, more glorious. Again, that's the worst that the world can do to us, right? 
So Stephanus dies. Stephanus earns his crown. He finishes well. It's a great example for us, right? The aftermath. It's not the end of the story. In verses 1 through 3 of Acts chapter 8, we see that as soon as this execution happens, approved by Saul, the persecution for the church ramps up. It becomes more intense. This is the first time in Scripture the word persecution is used. It implies a systematic and intentional program of harassment and oppressing. The believers here, because it's so intense, are forced to leave their homes. Just don't read over this with passing indifference. Our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that day were forced to leave home, to pack up, walk away from their lives, their livelihoods, their workplaces, their friends. Can you imagine that here? If, if, if something happened today and all of a sudden intense persecution broke out against Christianity here in Grand Rapids, and we all had to run home from the service and throw stuff in our cars. And some of us are going to drive to Illinois to family. And some of us are going to go down south. And, and some of us are going to go to Indiana, Ohio, which wouldn't be, you know, that'd be good. Um, but no, all these places, right? And, and I'm driving, uh, driving out of town going, I don't know if I'll ever see Rusty again. And back then, right, and they're not going to be able to text to keep track of one another. Like, this could be goodbye. Walking away from my job. My kids are walking away from their neighbors, their friends that they play with. Like, this was hard. This was a sacrifice. I remember talking to our missionary friends last spring uh, who, who had to flee Ukraine. And I remember asking uh, Mike Gustafson, I said, what was one of the hardest things about leaving? He goes, no, I don't know if we're going to come back. I don't know if we're going to see people again. Not knowing if the building that we served in our houses are going to even be standing. He said, this sounds dumb. I remember him saying this, but my little boy having to leave his boxes of Legos behind. Sounds stupid, right? But to a seven-year-old boy, man, that's his world. We just had to take what we could and, and leave. That's the spirit of Stephen. That's the spirit of our brothers and sisters back here. They, they, they fled under persecution. They sacrificed. Not sure if they'll ever see home again. In the midst of this, we still see their courage and boldness. I mean, that's how intense it is that they're heavenly. And it says devout men still went and took care of Stephen's body. You didn't do that to someone who was stoned, by the way. If you were stoned, it was because you deserved it. And, and part of what happened, part of the shame and all that, is then your body was just left out there to rot in the sun. Not even give you the honor. Stephen's friends, devout men and women, cared enough about him. They honored him in defiance of the cultural norms, in defiance of the persecution. We're going to bury our brother. He deserves honor. Those who sacrifice for Jesus deserve honor. I was thinking about this last night, sitting in the hospital with Ann Hendrickson. I, this lady is a, in my mind, is a hero of the faith. Like they, these people deserve honor who give of themselves, give their lives for the gospel. They go and they bury him. And while this is going on, it says Saul ravages the church. That word ravages is a word that's used to describe what animals do to their prey. Tigers, lions, shredding, disrupting, opposing, blistering, killing. Saul was doing this gleefully. You see this later on in passages of Scripture where he talks about his former life. I persecuted the way, he says in Acts 22. In Acts 26, says, I not only locked him up, but when they were put to death, I rejoiced. I had raging fury, he says. I was a blasphemer. I intensely persecuted, he writes in Galatians. 
I was an insolent opponent, he writes in 1 Timothy. He was seeking to destroy. The picture here, he was going house to house. This is like, you know, you think of the, the Nazis back in Berlin. Crystal Nacht, when they went that night, that tragic night in Berlin, when they went to all the houses of the Jews and breaking their windows and dragging them out to the concentration camps, sometimes shooting them on the spot. I mean, this is what was going on in Jerusalem, men and women. And Saul is standing there in glee, watching it with enjoyment as this unfolded against the church, house to house. Intense persecution, but, right? But it didn't stop the spread of the gospel. I love this. The persecuted believers don't go, oh no, this is the end of the world, what are we going to do? Right? Verse 4, what does it say? Chapter 8, now those who are scattered (laughs) went about bemoaning their circumstances and complaining and shutting down until things got easier. Oh, wait, I read it wrong. My bad. Those who are scattered went about preaching the word. <laughs> Daryl Bach writes this, No matter where members of the new community went, mission followed. It's like Paul. Remember when Paul was in jail in Rome at the end of Philippians? Remember what he says in his letter? Because of my chains, the whole palace guard has heard the gospel. Okay, we've been scattered. Things are hard. Things are rough. Things are not going as we planned. What are we going to do? Well, let's just, let's just proclaim Jesus. That's what they did. Natalie Anderson, I was, you're right there. I was so encouraged Wednesday night. I was talking to Natalie at Paula Wong. She's babysitting this summer. Nannying, babysitting family doesn't know Jesus. She says, you know what I'm doing? I'm telling them stories, telling them Bible stories. I'm telling them about the story of Jesus dying on the cross. Wait a minute, now you're babysitting. That's not a Sunday school class. It's not Ignite. It's not base camp. And she's like, yeah, and they're learning. I told the little boy as he learns to read, I'm going to read the Bible to him. That's the spirit of Acts 8. Like, uh, here I am. Uh, I can only talk about Jesus. I can only talk about Jesus when it's easy. Or when circumstances are ideal. This is right. If I'm going to wait till circumstances are ideal to live out my faith seriously and proclaim, it's never going to happen. And that's what they did here. They just embraced where they were at, whether it's babysitting, whether it's running. You know, they're passing through McDonald's on their way to Samaria, running from the persecutors, and they're telling the person, the cashier, about Jesus on the way through. Right? It's what they did. It's the boldness of Stephen. Persecution, <laughs> backfiring. Right? didn't work. I love this. It's ordinary believers, by the way. These are ordinary believers sharing the message. We, we've, we've emphasized this so much here the past few weeks. Ordinary believers. Don't make too much of the word preaching in verse 4. That word preaching simply, you know, it's not, you know, it's easy to read that like, oh, well, yeah, they're preaching. I don't preach. Don't read it that way. It's not this. Preaching just simply means declaring, telling, sharing truth. Sharing the word can take so many different forms. Ordinary people. The persecution is having the opposite effect that was intended by Saul and the rulers of Jerusalem. Instead of stopping the gospel, it's spreading the gospel. Right? I love this. What seems like disaster is actually exactly what God ordained to accomplish his purposes. You know, back to Ukraine, I remember this. 
remember Holly talking to this girl, Holly Friesen, and, and reading her, her blogs afterwards. And she said, people are stepping into churches who never would have stepped into church before the war. No, war is not a good thing. They're not like, yay, war. No, but it's happened. And God is using it to reach people who never would have been reached with the gospel. And oftentimes that's the way it works. What seems like disaster to us, what seems like, oh no, what I had planned uh, isn't working out, God's like, that's okay. I got something better. We were at Ben and Christina Crock's house uh, Wednesday night for Palawag. They were talking about that in their own testimony, what, how God led them to Uganda. And they're like, we made these plans and we're doing this and this. And God, you know, Ben said, I finally get to the point and go, I'm done fighting. Like, just do what you're going to do because I'm trying to. And, and then finally, when I did that, God said, okay. There's all these things that kept happening to them, and they finally understood that God was just leading them to a place where he wanted them. What seems like frustrating to us, God's just unfolding his plan. That's what God does here. Sometimes, right, and let me say this, I I don't think these people in Jerusalem, I don't think they were being disobedient to this point, uh, you know, to the Great Commission. Uh, This church in Jerusalem is exploding. So I don't think this was God looking at them. This isn't like Babel. Tower of Babel, you know, where God's like, you're disobeying me, now I'm going to do this to scatter you. I don't, I don't think that that was the case here. Nothing but positive, no, positives have been said about the church so far. But I think what's happening here is that the church has gotten to a point now, and God's going, okay, now it's time to unleash this. Go. But I think it's worth asking the question, for some of us, as we think about that, about comfort zones. Too, right? Sometimes God needs to push us out. And it'd be worth, as you think about this, are there things that I'm holding on to? Are there places where I'm staying because it's comfortable, and if I step out and go this direction, I, I mean, it just feels too much of a stretch. But God may be wanting to direct you there because he's saying, I have gospel opportunity here, and we need to follow like they did. Instead of bemoaning that and trying to run back to our comfort zone, we embrace where God is leading us in the discomforts. Right? That was part of my thoughts over the past couple months too as things kind of started heading a certain way here and I had to wrestle with that even in my own life. Do, do, is, am I resisting in any way because I'm just comfortable where I'm at? Right? And, and we get there sometimes. Do I not want to adopt because it's comfortable? It was. Right? Sometimes God's pushing us. And we embrace that. I love this too. Ministry doesn't always happen according to our plans and designs, right? It's the case here. This gospel explosion in Acts chapter 8, had nothing to do with the church's strategy and plans. Now, we are to strategize and plan and be wise. But we also have to understand that our strategies and plans have their proper place. God ultimately is going to do what God's going to do. And the gospel explosion here in Acts 8 had nothing to do with the wisdom of men and the plans and strategies of men. They didn't plan for persecution. Another evidence, so, and again, this is what is encouraging. God ultimately is the one calling the shots. We just yield to that. What they did wasn't plan and strategize, but what they did is they responded well, godly, in a bold way when God did guide and direct. And they just responded the right way. So let's make our plans and strategies, let's hold them loosely, understanding that ultimately God's calling the shots, and we're going to follow his lead, not expect him to follow ours. That's what they did here. Another significant thing you just see here, and I just want to keep this before you as we understand just how Acts is unfolding here. Again, Luke is using geography. 1-8, Acts 1-8, we got the roadmap. Witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea. Now in chapter 8, we're hitting Samaria. 
Samaria is now being introduced. Luke is using geography again to help us measure the work of God and the spread of the gospel. One thing I love about this is if the church here, I, I can't say this for sure, but if the church here was planning and strategizing, I, I can almost bet you that Samaria would not have been their target. The animosity that existed, remember the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along. The Jews looked at them as half-breeds, as compromisers, because during the, the occupation they had, uh, they had married with Assyrians and had children with Assyrians, and, and so they were viewed as less than. Samaria wouldn't have been their choice. And yet again, we see God going, I'm going to lead you to where I want to lead you to. These are people. They're maybe outsiders, but they're people who need to hear the gospel. So Samaria may not have been the church's first choice. It probably wouldn't have been ours if we were there during that time, but it was God's. And that's what God does. And I want you to consider this morning, what's your Samaria? Who are the people maybe you don't like? Right? Maybe it's that neighbor, or obnoxious kids, or maybe it's that part of town that you just say those people never come to Jesus. Right? Maybe it's those people who vote for the other political party. Uh, Samaria? Maybe those are exactly the people God's calling me to love and reach out to. Philip, what does he proclaim? Philip becomes the example. Here's one of the people who went. Again, a common person. One of the people who went. Philip. Verse 5, he proclaimed to them the Christ. I took some boldness to proclaim Christ in Samaria. He proclaimed Christ as the Messiah, not the Samaritan Tahib. Samaritans had their own Messiah figure. Philip goes in there and he proclaims the true Messiah, Jesus. And again, I love this. We emphasize this with Stephen. Once again, we see a non-apostle boldly and effectively proclaiming the word, which should be an encouragement to all of us. You don't need the seminary degree. You don't have to have the official title or job to be a bold an effective proclaimer for Jesus Christ. And we'll unpack this more as we learn a little bit more about Philip in the next couple of weeks, but I love this, that Philip overcomes social prejudices and the magic arts that are practiced by people like Simon in his faithful proclamation of the word of God. Philip goes and he, in a sense, touches the leper. Get that from Mark's account of Jesus. Remember Jesus and the leper Jesus, if you can, can you make me clean? And Jesus could have stood 50 feet from that man and said, be clean. But Jesus goes and he touches the leper. People didn't touch lepers. But he did it to communicate something. Philip goes here and he touches the leper in Samaria. And what happens in that city? How does this section close? There was great what? Joy. The church, the people of God, conduits of joy. And there's one thing that our world needs more than anything else today. It's the hope the gospel brings and the subsequent joy that comes from it. They're hurting. They're desperate. They're living in darkness. And you have the means through the gospel and the spirit of God to show them the way and to bring truth to them so that they can find joy. Joy will not come from them changing their genders Joy will not come from them pursuing whatever sexual deviance they want to pursue or any financial thing they want to pursue. Joy comes from them knowing Jesus. You have that answer. You boldly proclaim it.
whatever context you find yourself in, right? Be a joy bringer. Overcome the challenges like they did. So points of application. Again, don't be discouraged when people don't respond when you share the gospel. Stephen gives this brilliant speech in Acts 7, and they kill him. And there's persecution. But after the fact, people start coming to Jesus. Don't be so short-sighted. It may not be about you in this moment, but your faithful witness now may have a ripple effect that you never even are going to see. Don't be discouraged if people aren't responding to you. Just keep proclaiming. Be willing to suffer for Christ. Be willing to sacrifice and be inconvenienced. Right? Be willing to let go of what you hold most precious for the sake of something better. Right? Be willing to let go of what you hold most precious for the sake of something better. Have confidence and assurance. Remember that the world hates the message of the gospel, so again, just don't try to make it palatable so they'll accept it. It's by nature of what it is, it's going to be offensive. Don't run away from that. Remember that God often uses struggle and suffering and tension to accomplish his purposes. Don't wait for the ideal. It's not going to happen. I asked you, in what ways are you too comfortable? What comfort zones do you maybe need to get out of? And also, I just say this. Remember the reality of persecution, right? We sit here in our air-conditioned building sometimes. Got our worship band, coffee out here in the hub in between services. This is good. We're blessed. But as we experience this, be mindful that there's parts of the world where we have brothers and sisters who are suffering, and sometimes we forget about them. Go home today. Sign up for the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter. Do something. But the reality of persecution, let Stephen's martyrdom awaken with you and again the awareness that this is what people do sometimes. They suffer for their faith. I'm going to ask Spencer to come on up. He's going to lead in one last song. We'll leave you this quote from, um, about Stephen as we close. Stephen is the first witness in the church who died for his confession of faith in Jesus, the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord and Savior. An authentic witness of Jesus is a person full of the Holy Spirit, willing to serve at tables, active in proclaiming Jesus Christ, unfazed by opposition, capable of explaining the significance and meaning of the gospel, unwilling to compromise his convictions, willing to die for his faith, which he regards as more precious than his own life, and loving people who have not yet accepted the gospel, including his enemies. What Luke emphasizes is not Stephen's courage, but the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, the same Holy Spirit that's available to you.